Welcome to Every Step Podcast. I'm Christina Weston. And I'm Judith Beck. Every Step is the podcast where career and life meet. With a new guest every episode, we explore the gutsy issues affecting everyone in the workplace. In this episode of Every Step, we are joined by Lisa Barron, Australian fashion designer who this year celebrates 40 years in business. We chat about what it takes to have longevity in business. Welcome, Lisa. We're so excited to have you with us today and congratulations. You're celebrating 40 years in business. That is certainly longevity in business. Um, So that's wonderful, wonderful. When I talk to founders, and I know Judith and I have spent a lot of time chatting to would-be founders and people that are going into business, and what we're often surprised by, and we've been through this journey ourselves, what we're often surprised by is that they're unprepared for what's ahead of them, and they're not not ready for it. They go into it starry-eyed. And I'd like to open up this conversation about um, all of us sharing what it is that we personally found challenging um, in the beginning and over the journey, like things that we weren't weren't expecting. Um, Lisa, I'll, I'll throw to you first, if that's okay. Oh, well, as you mentioned, 40 years, it's a long time ago. So I've got to go back to those early days where, yes, I was starry-eyed as well. You know, I think leaving Perth um, with my $500 in sewing machine and saying to my mum, hey, mum, I'm heading over east. I'm going to be a fashion designer. You know, I really thought it was as easy as that. Mm. And in some ways it was, but I think, um, you know, for, for businesses now and looking back in reflection, you have, there's some key questions you have to ask yourself, such as, you know, is there room in this world for this business, for this service? Um, you know, it might be something that, people don't even realize they need yet. So it's having that that insight and that ability to really look at whether there is a need for this, you know, such as fax machines. I remember the first person trying to sell me a fax machine. I was like, what? I don't need that. Why do you need that? (laughs) I've never needed that. I've been perfectly fine without it. But, you know, look what's happened. Um, So I, I think there's having that real insight into what what you're trying to deliver to the world and make a business out of um and that's so that, that market is... fit piece isn't it that's kind of yeah. is there market fit you might have the best idea and then you go and talk to people and I was just sharing yeah. with Judith before we came we came on and started recording actually that you can have an idea and then you can go and talk to people about it and they go yeah 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 and then you need to ask them would they invest in it or would they buy it and unless yeah. they're prepared to put their money where their mouth is, yeah, maybe you don't have market fit. <laughs> and that's hard to work out sometimes. Mm. Sometimes you have to jump in and give it a go. But while you're doing that, I think it's important to have enough skills to cover to cover the business. You know, if you start out employing everybody to do it, one, you don't have the oversight to see that they're doing it properly. But two, like any small business, you know, and, and I must preface that a lot of my reflections are basically in the industry, in the fashion industry, and that, so that's where it's coming from. And I suppose that's why you've asked me to come on. But, you know, I can sew, pattern make, sell, do it all. Not that I want to, but if I have to, I can. So I think it's an important that's thing. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. pretty cool. I think no. that's another misconception. I think founders who come in or new founders who have come in and are moving from corporate, for example, into a startup business. And unless they can, you know, whatever whatever the skill is for the business, it might be I have to write code, I have to do sales, I have to do marketing, I have to be the cook, clean and bottle wash, I have to take out the garbage. Yeah, You have to be able to do everything initially. Otherwise, you're right, you're throwing money mm. out the door in Yes. Other people to do it for you. And you don't have that cash flow to begin with. No. And you don't have to be the best at it. I can make a pattern. It's not great, but I can do it. And I have enough understanding of it. Um, Same with my sewing. It's not great, but if I have to, but it gives you an understanding. So it gives you a deeper, a deeper knowledge. And then I think there's the most important part is the having some money sense. I get astounded at the lack of uh, knowledge of what it takes to actually start a business, what it takes to run it, and then, you know, to, you know, it's, it's simple. You basically just need to know what goes out has to come back sooner or later. And if you can't see that happening, well, it's probably going to fail. 
So cash flow planning, cash flow planning. And the money never happens as fast as you think. Yeah. Always takes longer. Before you make it. Don't spend it before you make it. Yeah. Yeah. And I always found that, you know, looking back in the first three years of um, running my business was the one, yeah, don't spend it before you make it. But also um, you have to be prepared that things aren't going to happen that fast. You're not, the business isn't going to come rolling in the door. You've got to put the more time and effort mm-hmm. into it. Then, mm-hmm. you know, if you think you only, you only need to do this amount of time, double it. <laughs> Triple it, quadruple it. <laughs> exactly right. Because you've got to put, you've got to put in all the time, one, to do all those functions that, that, that we've been talking about. You've got to do everything as the, as the owner. And mm-hmm. because you don't, you aren't in that position to hire staff. And you don't want to go out and start hiring people before the business comes in. So you may need to do two or three different things and do things longer. So you've got to be able to um, understand that it won't come in. I mean, I I thought I was under that impression. You know, I'd think I'd go in and see a client. And if I didn't get the business, I was like, but why not? <laughs> get the business and so and you have to keep pushing and keep pushing until you do and um you got to take the knockbacks I think you've got to be able to bounce back from the knockbacks yeah. and not be and learn from them yeah. you know it's Mm. here comes this word again resilience you know I, I thought I was resilient <laughs> before I started the various businesses that I've been involved with I had no idea what resilience really really meant and it is that it is that journey. I mean, you've been, Lisa, you've been through so many cycles, so many industry cycles. How have you built up your resilience? Because it takes grit to do what you've done. Absolutely. And I think it, you know, it it does, you know, reflecting on some of the things that we were we were going to talk about today, you know, the the tough times and there's been such a variety of tough times and it's those early days and that early grounding that really sets you up well for it like if I look at um you know during COVID that was probably one of the worst um tough times that there was but I think um that we got through that from well falling back on those core values and structures as such as relationships you know, building great relationships in business to me is king, mm. whether it's staff, whether it's, um, you know, your clients. But during COVID, and that was the doozy of the toughest time, um, it was relationships that got me through that. My clients who I basically dress women in senior roles and corporate and special occasion, both of those things were out oh. the door. Yeah. So, and, you know, I, I really appreciate the advice from well-meaning um helpers saying you know go into loungewear um no that's like asking you know guy grossi to start making you know i don't know meat pies but it i just couldn't um do that but my clients the relationships they kept me going and my team you know my fantastic team we're small but powerful and connected and respectful and all of those things and you know i couldn't have done it without them so you know and then there was the 92 economic recession that was pretty bad too. You know, I was watching boutiques close down left, right and centre, owing me money. It was a terrible time. Um, So, you know, I think that that idea of then having money sense, knowing to bring it in, keep it tight, really know what you're doing um, at that time, that, that helped during that time. But it's mindset. You know, I was going to say the idea of a recession. I started the business in 83 in a recession. When I arrived in Melbourne, there was a recession. There were bushfires. I think Joan Kerner was premier. I knew they needed fashion. I knew, I knew <laughs> Melbourne needed a fashion um, new brand. But, you know, it was then that it, it was a little bit of naivety. But I invented this word. Well, after I realized what a recession was and that I was a bit silly to start a business during a recession, but I, I invented this word called obliviousism. And it's oblivious, oblivious optimism. Brilliant. And boy, that has set me up well, you know, and I still use it today. Sometimes it's better not to know, but that optimism and that positivity gets you through a lot. But you so, also have wisdom now, right? Because you've yeah. been through things. So you can 
you can have that yeah. it's yeah. it's it's married with with wisdom born of experience yeah hopefully yes uh, hopefully i'm wiser now than i was in 1983 <laughs> but, you know we made it so you know i think that that point that you made about the financial side of it i mean in the first 3 years you know you're still you're just trying to make money but once you start making money and you start making so what a lot of companies um get themselves into trouble as they spend too much, right? It's just like anything, the more you make, the more you spell. But I always had that view that, you know, once you start making money, when I got into like my fourth, fifth and sixth year, those years, I always had a year's overhead in the bank and I was doing recruiting, right? So we didn't have product, that type of thing was a service. But my view was, and it was basically from my grandmother who said, you know, save for a rainy day. My accountants would go nuts with that philosophy because they go, why are you putting this money in the bank? I go, it's a, it's a year's overhead. They go, you should be investing it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, no, no, that is my comfort zone. It's for called self-insurance. That's what yeah, it's called. Yeah. And when the, when the, um, the recession that we had to have and when the Y2K and the GFC and all that stuff, I thank my grandmother for that many, many times because I didn't have to make people redundant. And and sometimes we had no business coming in for like eight or nine months. Yeah. But if you hard. let your people go, then when things pick up, you got to try to hire people back. It's going to cost you twice as much and you're yeah. going to lose momentum. And I think one thing I always say to new founders coming in, if they start making a lot of money, don't spend it. Save up, save it like you would anything, because you'll thank yourself. Because there's always a dip, isn't there? There's always a dip and a downturn that's going to be. And if you, and if you panic, I never had to change my rates. I never had to lower my prices or any of that stuff because of that comfort zone. Yeah. And I think that that is a big thing in any business to really financially. A lot of people forget about it. Yeah, and the other aspect of that too is. If you're growing, how quickly do you grow and how quickly do you add on people? Because there comes a point for some types of businesses where it becomes a negative return. You actually put on people, you have more overhead, you have more responsibility, and actually you're not making as much profit, but you're working a lot harder. Lisa, how did you how did you manage that aspect of it and, and not get carried away? I think because I've always run my own race. I mean, I've been aware of other brands and, and you know, competitors, et cetera, but it's not something I've ever really focused on. I've just been on my own track the whole way. And I think reflecting this on this 40 years of what is success, you know, is it success just to have made it to 40 years? Um, I there would be people that would look at my brand and go, oh, that's not successful. She's only got one shop and she wholesales a little bit and she, you know, but to me, that is so successful. And exactly what you said, Christina, you know, there was a time that we had three stores, um, a lot of staff, you know, one store was carrying the other two and, you know, it just was a lot more stress, a lot more work. And for me, quality of life is pretty important. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I think it's, it comes down to ego as well. And, you know, when I have noticed how other people have um, played out through this industry, you know, many of them back in the 90s driving around in fantastic Porsche cars and, you know, living an amazing lifestyle. And that's not something that, you know, was important to me. My business was the focus. So, you know, I could easily let go of that. But they're not here anymore. You know, they're not even brands that were in, every second page of Vogue magazine. And that wasn't my focus. I didn't need to push that way. I just wanted to keep my business solid. So, you know, I think you just, you just run your own race and That's against yourself because cool. you can get so caught up in trying to keep up with what everyone else is doing that it can be really damaging. It's a big distraction, isn't it? And I find myself sometimes in, in my business now getting worried about what the competition's doing. And I've got to, just as you've said, I have to find myself pulling myself back and going, actually, I know what we do is really good. Yeah. It's a high level of service and I'm going to keep um, promoting and, and, and running my own race. But it is challenging because there's that noise and there's that little niggle in your ear and it's like if only you did this if only you did that yeah. then you'd be more yeah. successful but you, yeah. 
you got to pull it back, don't you? You do. You have to have faith in yourself. Know what you're doing. Know what you're doing is is great because I get so many suggestions. Like I think every client, second client I've got was is a you know a would be designer telling frustrated me frustrated designer. <laughs> Why don't you do that? Why don't you have it like this? And I think, oh, okay, yep, yep. It's it's really interesting. So, but you've just got to know, find your niche, and really know it well, and know what you're delivering and who you're delivering to, and um, and stick with it and believe in it. And how many how many businesses have we seen over the years get into trouble because they tried to do too much mm. and they tried to you know diversify into it and I had the same issue Lisa people saying well why don't you do contracting and why don't you do you know uh, junior level positions and those types and I go no I'm focusing on executive search and that's all I want to do yeah <laughs> yep. more than that and I don't want to and I didn't want to I, I didn't care what the competition was doing either because it was kind of mm. like Mm. I'll focus on what I need to do. If, I'll focus on the customer. I think that's important. If you focus on the customer yeah. and you provide a really good level of service, you're mm -hmm. always going to be ahead of the game. If you mm -hmm. go that extra 10% and just do yeah. a little more and people, you know, I remember going into your store in Armadale and they didn't know who I was. I just walked, I just came in there was a couple of years ago walking in and the girls were so good they were like how are you if you need any help let us let us know you know do you just want to look you know it was great and I and how many times have we gone into stores where nobody even looks at you and they're looking down on their phone or something and, yeah. and you know when that happens I walk out yeah yeah I don't want them to follow me around the store yeah. I just want them to acknowledge that I'm a person coming into their business. And, you go, and, I, and that goes for any kind of, whether it's a service business or retail or whatever, you mm. just want customer service. And if yeah. companies, when people um, look at starting new businesses, if they just focus on that first yeah. and what they can provide over and above the competition, they'll, yeah. they'll probably do all right. Yeah. How did you create that culture, Lisa? How did you how did you create and then grow and sustain that culture of customer centricity? I think because I've been on the floor a lot and I for me, my customers are everything. Whether I was just for the first 10 years of the business, I was just wholesale and I did the selling myself. I wanted to know who was stocking my brand. I'd created it, so I thought I was the best one to explain why, um, where the fabrics came from why the shape of that dress is suitable for this kind of demographic, why the shape of that was suited for someone else. So I think I've just always been hands-on and then any team member or staff member that's come on board have just seen that it works. So they've adopted that themselves. And you know, my store manager now, who I think you know, Judith Hannah, she's been with me 10 years. You know, she's just fantastic. The customers just absolutely love her. She knows exactly, um, you know, what they're needing. It's all coming from helping them. You know, yes, we need to make money, but, you know, we don't want anyone buying a dress that is not going to be something that's going to be a valued part of their wardrobe. And, and that has to be deep, not just spoken about, not just token. You know, that's why I don't have, you know, 15 stores and, you know, driving around in a Porsche even now. But, you know, to me, the value of the business and the um, relationships and the rewards that have come have come from just genuine interactions. Yeah, and I think yep. that long, longevity in terms of clothing, you know, where I think there's a, um, a socio kind of cycle now coming back where people don't want the throwaway clothes. They don't want the $5 this and the $10 that. I mean, people are still buying them. Yeah. But there's more people making conscious purchases around, no, I'm going to spend however many hundreds of dollars on this piece, but I know I'm going to have it for a long time and I'm contributing to the environment and I'm mm. contributing to a whole bunch of other things in doing that. Well, definitely. And I think that's something that, again, has been just an inherent part of the business, that sustainability I've always made in Melbourne um, you know, my cutting room now is next door to my shop, you know, with glass walls. So my new store, which we um, moved to after COVID, um, is the epitome of sustainability. We make the clothes, they're in the store. 
you, women come to me and say, I bought this coat 15 years ago and that makes me so happy. Yeah. Other businesses would go, I wished I used cheaper fabric or, you know, they might say to me, I've lost the button on this coat from 10 years ago. I'll know exactly where that button is. Go and get it for them and give it to them. Oh, you know, okay. so for me, I love the fact and it's been the whole way through the history of the brand. These garments last a long time. So the the whole idea of fast fashion has never been a part of my um, ethos anyway. And I just love that people are getting value for money. I work hard for my money. So I know that, and many of the women that I dress do also. So to provide them with a, you know, a product that's going to sustain and be with them and they feel they're getting value for money, that's why they come back. And, and I love that. And I, I do get very annoyed at fast fashion and it's still there and it's still there because too many people keep supporting it and they might have a placard in one hand going, you know, hey, we've got to save the planet, but they're wearing something from Topshop. It's like, come on, <laughs> you know, walk the walk. I remember before the before the pandemic, I was in Sydney and I had to go and get a, um, a wedding present. And so we were across the street from one of the large department stores. Anyway, I ran in there. They had a big sale going on, all the banners and everything else that they spent a fortune to get people into the store. But there was no one anywhere to wait on you. And so, I, you know, I was like, going, oh, my God, I, you know, virtually I couldn't get any. Oh, no, that's um, that's, you know, when you find somebody, you know, that's uh, so and so's business. And I don't know where they are when we can't open the cases or we can't. And, and I thought to myself, this is why people are. Uh, prefer to go to the village shopping yeah. you know go to the to the shops because they yeah. get the customer service or it pushes them online yes they, yes they can't you know you think just hire some people to help yeah. <laughs> if you're going to the days of department stores probably are limited unless they make changes because I hear it time and time again and then there's the exclusivity um, situation too you know buying from small brands and independent brands um there's so many benefits to it um and i think people are realizing that uh, yeah absolutely i mean i know what my attitude was when i had frg was that we would run like a we were a small business with a, a big business attitude in other words we had the structures and we could do anything that anybody else did in fact most of our clients probably thought we were a big business but then we could throw the extra customer service on top of that, which would then be beneficial to us because they were getting extra service. And, um, yeah, I think that's critical that still having, I think you need to have that corporatization, that kind of process and business planning. And, you know, I talk to a lot of founders in the industry that I'm working in now, which is micromobility, electric scooters, electric bikes. And these are, a lot of them are, are young people under 30 and they've got this bright idea and you start to sit down to them and, and you talk to them about what costs and how much is it going to cost you to buy these devices or oh, this much have you actually budgeted for insurance well how much is insurance unfortunately insurance in our industry is crazy stupid expensive no matter where you are in the world it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of premium wow. and they haven't actually factored it in and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed but they they haven't actually done the basic things of understanding what their inputs are what their costs are going to be and running a basic spreadsheet, running their projections of what they think they might earn against what their outgoings are going to be. And they just go into it really blindly. Mm. I mean, there are some that are, are very, very sophisticated and, mm. and it's wonderful, but too many are actually falling into the, I just love this idea of doing this and I just love these scooters and yeah. they haven't actually thought everything else through. Yeah, that's so true. I have the the parallel to that is um windsheeters and t-shirts and you know I mentor a lot of you know fashion startups and you know it's it's really hard when you and and I think taking it into the creative world too you know all the creative ideas are unique but it's that process Christina of that planning of knowing you know is the market ready for it can you fund it can you produce it um, so I, I kind of, I'm very interested in the creative world and how they turn their brilliant ideas and skills into, a, you know, a, a living for themselves and, and many don't. And I think I saw a lot of this being on the Creative Victoria Advisory Board. There's so much talent out there. And yet there are examples 
that I just have so much respect for. And one is um, Roan, the street artist who, you know, has put on the most amazing shows around Victoria, you know, transforming buildings with his work and the atmosphere and the feeling. That is, to me, is one of the best examples of seeing a, a true creative and a true artist um, creating his own market, his own world. And it's just brilliant. So... So that's really interesting because I think create, creativity, the, the creative um, industries are actually very challenging, aren't they? They're probably more challenging because it's not as, I mean, some of them are tangible. But what are the things that, that you find are the most challenging for small business people that, are, that have a, a creative product or service? I think sometimes like we talk about, looking at market research but with creatives it's sometimes it's creating your niche so you might have to go that extra step of not thinking there's a niche there for it already but creating a niche and that that I would suggest that reaching out and finding mentors and and again I refer to Roan he surrounded himself with some very smart people and supporters and like back in the olden days in the you know, in, in Paris in the 20s, you'd find yourself a patron even, yeah. you know, someone who would help you. So find that business brain, that business planner, and this can apply to any business really, you know, to go out there and find someone who who believes in what you're doing <clears throat> and, and can help direct you because creatives, a lot of their brain space is used to being creative yeah. and and they'll probably undersell themselves a lot too as far as how they price their creative yes think oh i don't you know oh really i shouldn't charge that much or you think are you kidding me this is amazing you should be yes. charging xyz why are you only charging this yes. because they're so humble mm. about and they don't think that people are necessary like when you see people that you know that are doing great art or sculptures or whatever often you think and then, and then you've got, on the other hand, somebody who puts out something that's just a blank canvas and says, give me $100,000 for that. Yeah. <laughs> and someone will. It's all about market and market yeah. size. Yeah, someone will buy it. Somebody um, will buy it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah, the pricing side, I think, is one thing that new founders need to really think about. And it goes along with confidence as well and yeah. uh, believing in what it, you do but never to under undersell yourself and always find a when you're starting the new a new business always find the midway point you don't mm. want to be the most expensive because you're not established yet you don't want to be the cheapest but you want it must be commercial it must be to the point where whatever it is that you're selling that you're going to make a profit and that you're going to be able to survive and that's where your mentors and people who um perhaps, you know, you, you can uh, access to get advice about and mm. run it past fresh eyes to yes. say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm pricing. But people who have had that experience in in that area, yeah. um, I think that's mm. really important because otherwise yeah. you could really undersell what you're doing. We see small business people trying to buy market share and running at a conscious loss for a period of time to try and build build markets and what we're seeing now which is obviously clearly a flawed methodology is that the venture capitalist or the investors that are backing those businesses are now saying your burn rate sorry no I want you to turn a profit but they've actually sold their souls in the process and it's it's very challenging to to flip those costs out when those costs are committed often contractually uh so there's that kind of flaw almost about, you know, we're talking about pricing your product. And, and I know in clothing, you know, it's it's critical to, to price things appropriately. You don't want to buy a market and then thinking you build loyalty and then you, you know, you can double the price next year because you've built loyalty. No, no, people are fickle. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think that's what happens. And it it's back to what you were saying, Judith, about having the money in, ready to go. Fashion is one of those rather difficult businesses where it's in such cycles so you have to produce a season's collections which is you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of production to make those garments and then hope they sell and so I often say fashion is such a difficult 
um, business in many ways because it's really like starting a new business every collection, every six months. It's not like you've come up with one product. You know, I often joke and say, I wish I invented the Mars bar because that's what I make every year, every season, every production run, it's the same. So with fashion, it's different every six months. And that that's a scary thing, but yeah. it's also the exciting thing. And, you know, I, I love the fact that, you know, it is new every season. Well, I say it's new. It's got to be new. It's got to be different, but not too different. Because if you flip it too much, you lose your, you lose your market. So it's got to be different enough. So that in itself is quite a challenge to come up with collections, you know, a couple of times a year that are different, but won't um, scare anyone off. Yeah, that so, are still on brand. Yes. But yes. allow you to be creative and have another creative expression that's reflecting mm. society mm. or society's needs or your, your customers' needs. Yes, yes. You've been listening to part one of our conversation with Lisa Barron. For more, please tune in to part two. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favourite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics. In this episode of Every Step, we are joined by Lisa Barron, Australian fashion designer who this year celebrates 40 years in business. We chat about what it takes to have longevity in business. You are now listening to part two of our conversation with Lisa Barron, and we're going to jump right in where we left off. So how do you manage your sort of stress levels or what do you do to keep yourself um you know, uh, sane. sane. I mean, really, you know, because you know that is different than a selling a service where you're selling the same thing for you know ten years yeah. or whatever. Selling, yeah, yeah. you're really changing it up every single season. Oh, look, I think it, it's contradictory in a way because I think being creative and being organized don't normally go hand in hand, but That's you true. just have to. Um, being organized is the biggest stress relief, um, you know, knowing that you've got time. When I'm running behind schedule, the collection's not coming together, I've got only a window to sell to the boutiques I sell to, otherwise they'll spend their budget with other brands, um, that's stressful. So I think I've just come to know when times are stressful get ready for it. My team are great. You know, that's what I value long-term um, employees. They get to know it and they're part of it and they thrive on it and love it. Um, so I I really think being organized. Um, and as far as anything, I used to ride horses. That was great because horse riding is such a, so far from the fashion world. Horse people are so down to earth and so fabulous. Um, so that would be something I would do to kind of, you know, find that stress release. Um, but I just think interacting with people, one of my favourite things is, is to fill my table with a bunch of great people and talk about life and art and stuff, you know, you know, some, some good gritty conversations, you know, and that happens when you're around people you trust and are with. So I just think that social engagement as well as work has become more and more important to me. I mean, I've certainly done my years of fully, fully focused on work and, you know, feeling like everything else is being put to the side. But, um, you know, I just think trying to have that balanced, balanced and happy life. And really, I'm only making dresses. I'm not in a hospital emergency department. It's not oh. that serious. So, you know, I think we all say that to ourselves, but, you know, You've got people depending on you. Because handling yeah. stress is like, you know, they, uh, you know, the stress in my business was more about making a placement or someone was going to accept an offer or, you know, we, or there was a downturn or we lost, you know, um, a client would say, oh, it's the GFC. We've decided not to go ahead with those 10 positions. And I'm an, I'm an internal internalizer so I handle the stresses internal I don't sort of go out but what would happen this is honest to god truth what would happen is if there was a high stress time in the in the office like let's say something like some a client says oh we can't go down that track 
by the end of the day, my hair turned gray right down the middle. <laughs> oh, no. and, and my my consultants, well, my ex, you know, the um, uh, FRG is not going anymore, but my ex consultants would verify because they'd crack up. They'd go, oh my God, what's wrong with your, and I have this <laughs> because internally I was stressing and it affected my hair. And that always made me think about the relationship between how we handle stress in a work in our running our businesses and what else is going on in there so you know oh, it's all connected it's, all, it's connected. all connected so the fact that you know Lisa you're talking about balance and more and more of um the guests that we've had on this program we're all talking about balance I think that's a more of a, a theme that's coming through that we're not wired to work you know 15, 16 hour days. We're just yeah. not. You may think you're working, but you're kidding yourself. You only got maybe four, four hours of real productive focused time. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, it's brilliant to hear more people talking about, well, I get out, I do other things. I go ride horses. I go for a run. I catch up with friends. And that's mm -hmm. often where the creativity happens too. It happens when you're not there doing your thing when you're mm. actually out and somebody says something or you see something and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I've got an idea. Mm, mm, definitely, definitely. Absolutely. I think that, you know, the, um, you know, one of the rules we always had was I didn't want to work on the weekend. I mean, we, I'm not in retail, so we didn't have that. I didn't have to have it, the business open on the weekend. And I would always sort of go down that track that if you're, if you're in the office past six o'clock, I'm worried about your productivity what is keeping you in the office because I don't want you there and I don't want you to have to work on weekends. And um, that was always a thing of reevaluation so that of course we had periods where there was high volume and things, but just the generally that this is what should, you should be going home and be with your families or doing whatever it is that you want to do. And you shouldn't be doing that because if you are, what what's keeping them? And I always had this exercise where I'd say to consultants, say, okay, I want you to, this is for you. I don't want to see it. It's for your own benefit. I want you to, from the moment you get into the office, write down what it is that you're doing. Look at it. Coffee at five, do this, do this. And they, and they and do it for a week. I said, because if you do that for a week, you will see where the time wasters are and where the, where the flow is. And I remember one time I did it. I knew exactly where my time wasters were. It would be virtually with a cons one particular consultant that had coming in asking me qu questions. Every time yeah. I go. Yeah. So what I did was then I said, okay, we're going to have, um, I want all your questions. We'll have a meeting once a week, you know, so to get rather than you coming in and asking me different things, but um, you got to have that, you got to have that um, downtime with your, if you take your work home with to the, to your family or to whoever you have at home or whatever, you're going to burn out. That's one thing. And as an, as a, as a business owner, it's really hard to have that separation. You know, my husband and I talk about work-life integration, not work-life kind of separation because there is no work-life separation. Our business is our lives and our lives are our business. Um, and and that's that's really challenging as a founder because you do you do live and breathe it, and there isn't you don't walk out the door and you know turn off the light and kind of go home to the kids and the dogs and whatever else. It's not it's not like that. You carry it with you all the time because it's your money and your time, and there's no salary coming in. It's all up to you. Yeah, and I think what you both described there. Um, and for founders to know, and sadly, we don't see it in a lot of, you know, CEOs, it's either bred out of them or they didn't have it to begin with, but, you know, empathy and to be able to look at it from a, another perspective of how would I feel? How would I want to do it? And not as the owner of the business. Yes, it is your money. Yes, it is your, um, your dream, your business. It's not theirs, even though they will, good staff, you know, behave as, it, as if it is. And that's what I value and love. But it's having that empathy and really understanding um, another perspective. And I don't think that happens enough. And I think in some of the kind of, you know, ladder climbing that happens, that skill is lost. And I, I think it's um, so important. And, and it 
it, it comes down to clients as well. You know, you really, if you can't see it from the client perspective and your employee's perspective, I don't think you're doing a good job as being a, a leader or a founder of a business without understanding how everyone else is feeling and what would you do? And, you know, I'm really strict too about not having overtime. I mean, we have fashion shows and things like that, and I have to drag them along front row and stuff like that. So they'll, you know, do that. But yeah, I, I feel the same way, Judith, that if you can't get your job done within the time frame that is allocated, then there's either something wrong. The job's too big and we need someone else or yep. they're inefficient. And if they're inefficient, well, they can go. So that's where you can be the tough boss. But um, you know, expecting people, you know, when I see a lot of my clients in law firms and finance, I can't believe the hours they work. And I, I want to say to them, you're such smart women. What are you doing? You know, but that that's just the way the culture has been developed. But I hopefully it's shifting. Hopefully it's moving back to, you know, a little more reasonable because it's just, it's kind of not human. It's not human. You're absolutely right. It's not human. And, and the thing, you know, I've advised a lot of um, women um, primarily over the years that, you know, if they're, if you are being overworked, and, you know, you feel you're, you've got to, you've got to go to your boss and go, this is what I've been doing. This is why. And this is kind of like that exercise. I'm mm -hmm. not wasting any time. <laughs> I've just got too much work. Yeah. And so, and that was, that was the purpose of that exercise. And they, you know, consultants would come back and I'd go, well, what did you find? And Oh yeah, I know exactly where. And sometimes it was a client that yeah. was taking up too much of their time. And it was like unnecessarily, and it could be this client is doing this and I need some help with that, which mm -hmm. is, which is fine. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd also say to new founders, especially if they're um, whether it's service or, or retail really is you, you need to like your clients. Like you need to don't work with clients that don't align with your values mm -hmm. or they are going to be over time wasters like they expect everything but they don't want to pay anything so you, that's part of valuing your offering mm -hmm. and value you know, i remember during the um any dip any dip clients would go can you reduce that can you reduce your rates because immediately they'd be thinking oh there's a low time so you could reduce. And because my rates were always mid-level, I would always go, well, what part of the process do you want me to cut out? Maybe <laughs> we don't do the reference checking or maybe the interviewing we cut out. Right? <laughs> because I knew if I reduced my rates, it's very hard to get them back up again when, when, when things improve. And then I was more like, well, why? I'm not providing a lesser service. <laughs> It's, you, it's a common it's common and I feel it's so devaluing to the person and you know you can imagine in retail you know there's a lot of is this on discount no this year this this week I'd like my full wage if that's all right with you yeah. you know <laughs> do you mind um so you know there's ways of getting around those kind of cheeky questions you know and most people are not willing to take a discount on their income for that week well nor am I or I say don't you think it's worth it you know and and you know you can pop, pop down to one of those department stores I'm sure you'll find something on sale you know it's um yeah you've just got to have pride and you know value yourself to be able to respond as you have you know it's but that's out there, but it's not a main, it's not a main part of the world. But yeah, I do have a bit of a chuckle to myself when someone asks me to discount because they don't realise the implications of that and what that means. So hopefully the listeners here will not ask someone to reduce their income next time they're in a shop or in a service provider. And don't buy your business. Like in other words, in the beginning of your business, don't think that you have to buy the business because in, in my industry in recruitment, there'd be a lot of companies out there where the consultants would, you know, oh, I would take, take a potential client to lunch, spend a lot of money on big lunches and everything else before they even got a dime. Yeah. And I used to say to my consultants, you're not taking anybody to lunch <laughs> until they give you the business. If they give you the business and you yeah. want to take them as a thank you yes. for their custom, Fair yeah. enough. But most of those times, 90% of those people that you're taking the lunch will not give you business. Mm, you will be yeah. wasting your time giving them and yeah, going out and having that. And now you just, that's one thing, buying the business, bad idea. 
but we've never it's done. It, it yeah. still happens. It still, still happens. happens. I watch and it happening. A lot of companies are wasting a lot of money by doing that. Be, you're not because back your product or your service and say you're buying the best. Yeah. And as a result, and the other thing is not giving discounts to because once you start giving discounts to friends and family or because everybody's a friend and family really at the end of the day sometimes you know so you start um making connections in business and then you may become friends with them and then the expectations will be well you're going to give me a discount well no i'm not going to give you a discount <laughs> what what i am going to give you is a really good service at a really good price because the minute you do that especially in a service environment and then someone else hears that they that that you gave it for cheaper it's going to damage your brand oh that's so true and it's it's kind of nice to hear it in the service industry because it's the same for me i've never relied on discount i will have sale if i've got genuine product that's left over that i need to move but there's some product i i wouldn't put on sale because i know that it's going to sell eventually and it's not about its price it's about who needs that that garment or who needs that dress but yeah i've it is amazing. If you do have that philosophy of discounting, I've had women say to me, Lisa's a very good friend of mine and she always gives me a discount. And they're saying it to me. And I'm um, I'm Lisa. <laughs> not a friend of mine. You know, it's it, it is amazing. It's really know, funny. Expectation <laughs> of people. Um, so yeah, I think holding that value and my client base, I do feel I'm in a wonderful niche market of smart women um and all genders really i dress i dress a variety of um genders but um smart women who you know know the value of something and so that what they want they're getting what they want a well-made beautiful garment that's going to reflect their personality that's going to make them feel great when they walk into a boardroom or a presentation or an event that's what they know they are getting how can you discount that you know wow. it's it's so yeah, having that value and integrity of your, your belief in yourself. Well, now you can say to them, if they ask you for a discount, you can say, well, do you want me to take the sleeves off? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, then I have to charge them for the alteration fees. <laughs> yes. We'll yes. do it without a zipper. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, do you think it's easier to start a business now or harder? Oh, look, I, I've been pondering that. Um, I, it's both. It's both. And it depends on the business. I think it's it's easier in some ways. Um, there's more avenues to sell. You, your competition is actually less visible because a lot of business, you know, even research, even if people don't shop online, all researching, whether it's for a service or for a product, is all done online. So you have to be able to be visible um, online. So that's quite that can be quite easy. Um, I think it's harder in some ways because now you have to know your niche much better because you have to be more targeted. You know the well, and it it's it was harder previously because if to have a product you needed to have bricks and mortar and that was expensive. These days, you don't need to be investing in bricks and mortar if you've got a great product that can sell online. It's a much easier to get it out in the marketplace. But then again, bricks and mortar, I, I call my shop, you know, it's a magazine page. Um, I'm paying high rent, but everyone who drives down High Street Armadale um, can see my magazine page, my window. So, you know, I've got kind of advertising going to thousands and thousands of people every day. So that's a really important part of the real estate of the shop is... Um, that that market and so passerbys is still a really big part of the business and so I think it's both you know I think it's harder these days to build that loyal long um, customer faithfulness um, I feel over 40 years I've built that which is you know in will hold me in good stead for a long time um, that's harder to do these days because you're not getting that personal connection as much because a lot more business is done online and more research is done online. So I think it's both, um, you know. You've got to take the good from that. You've got to grab what's what works and what does. One of the things that I love, and I was telling Christine about it earlier, that um, during the GFC, you were doing the online fashion shows. 
That was so cool. That was really good. I love that. That that was great. And we now have kept that going. So it was a, it was a good friend of mine who said, why don't we do it? I've got lots of friends. We'll bring them all on. You can stand there and chat to them and they can buy. So we did um, several of those and it was fantastic. And even to this day, I do online um, Zoom shows for people. I, I have a beautiful, very, very special client She'll get sick of me mentioning her all the time, but she's an astronaut and she lives in the States and is now, you know, um, working at NASA, doing an incredible job. But she'll call me and say, I've got dinner with Biden. I've got this. I've got that on. I've got nothing to wear. No idea. So we'll go on the Zoom show. I'll show her all the new collection. And she'll go, yep. And I know her and I know her shape and I know what works for her. So she'll buy. So, you know, what what came out of COVID, some of those practices have really become a part of the, um, you know, our offerings as a business. Yeah, being so, able to do Zoom shows, it's a way of building your community as well. If yeah. they're coming to you online, it's another connection point for you to build yes. that that community and that brand loyalty. Yes, yes. So it's really opened it up. So we're seeing a lot more global um, interaction. Um, you know, I've, I've got connections with women's organisations around the world and, you know, we've grown our 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 client base um, more globally without having to increase our bricks and mortar footprint, which is great. I'd never give that up. I think it's a really important part of the brand, but um, having integrating both, both avenues of online and bricks and mortar is wonderful. Because really the customer service aspect is just changing from the person coming into the online experience. And once they order something, getting that item to them, them being able to exchange it or, or yeah. send it back if it doesn't fit correctly, those types of things, because that's where the reviews come online, isn't it? Where they're, that's where, do you, yeah. have, I mean, this review thing, because when you think about it, you see some, we we laugh because we, my husband and I will, they'll um, on Netflix, there'll be a movie and we'll, we'll go, okay, let's look it up. And it will say Rotten Tomatoes, 70% and IMB something. And it is the worst movie in the whole world. And so we think, is this one of those bots where they give reviews or is it? Yeah. Again, I probably don't rely on them too much. My marketing department, um, which is one fabulous girl, um, she is very focused on them. But again, it's a bit like I just do my job do what I can well. Um, I see the happy faces. To me, that's the review. I get the, you know, the thank yous personally on an on an email. I get the photo of the event or et cetera. Um, that to me is the review. But I know they are important and I should be more focused on. Well, but you've got an established business of 40 years and a reputation and everything. So things like those reviews, your customers love you and they're going to come to you regardless of you know, yeah. some troll yeah. or something, put something on, but someone yeah. starting a new business, yeah. you know, in their first year, if all of a sudden they're getting the company, you know, you hear about um, competitors putting bad reviews on the competition yeah. and those types of things. I would hate to have to deal with that these days. Yes. That yes. would be a tough thing to have, but that's some of the things that the new people coming in and starting businesses, they've really got to be aware of those kind of things, don't they? And really be on top of it. The social yeah I would imagine absolutely and there is a lot you can do with it so much and that's what's exciting about business these days you know it's a little bit like that um whole idea of you do a little bit if it works do more of it if it doesn't do something else so you know I think there's a lot of avenues that businesses can have a go at see how it works even your product line you know if it works do a little bit more you know I learned that probably um when I started, I wanted to make evening dresses with splits up to the thigh and, you know, plunging necklines and ready for the red carpet. And, oh, that didn't sell. Maybe if I lower the split and maybe put a little cap sleeve on it, maybe if I did this, oh, it all sold. So it really is being aware in that trial and error. And, you know, it, I see people putting so much money and effort into social media. And really, is it it's spreading wide? You might have 100,000 followers, but is What's it, it converting to sales? It? Yes. And that's, you know, it might hold me back having that philosophy sometimes, but I also, you know, I need to see a return for the effort and that doesn't always happen. I think I think one of the things too that I would say to someone coming in and running a new business is test it with people that you know as well. 
um, and get their views, even and accept the negative, because sometimes people don't want to hear. Just be careful, though. Sometimes your friends are going to tell you not what you want to hear. They're going to humor you and say, oh, it's amazing, yeah, you amazing because they don't actually want to lose the friendships. So. No, you, want a, yeah. you want a whole big range of people. But I, I always thought that get the negative, it, it, get the most negative people that you know <laughs> in that in that focus group, that they're yeah. the ones that will tell you whether or not you know, they don't like, so if you thought about this, because even if you're passionate and you still want to go ahead with the business, at least then you've got some perspective of what others are thinking and you can alter or change things or whatever, but don't, don't disregard, you know, like, except I remember when I was running um, financial executive women years ago, every year we'd have a focus group in Sydney where we would get, we'd ask the clients and some of their, uh, some of the members to come in. And the view was rip this apart, rip it apart. What do you like about the website? What don't you like about the website? What don't, and be prepared to take on their critique. Cause I never see it as cr criticism. I see it, I'm asking for it. I want the critique and then go. And a lot of great things came out of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So the more you can fresh eye type people as yeah. well as your friends and family, but fresh eye people are the most important to get. Yes. What do you think about this? Yes. To do it before it hits the marketplace. Like I feel like I have that every day when women come through the shop, they either <laughs> love it or hate it. And they don't hold back if they don't like it or it's not what they want. So you're kind of being under scrutiny all the time when your product is out there. And, and I think being a fashion designer, it, you know, I also liken it to, you know, being a, an artist and I'm putting my work on show, you know, and I, I get, I take it personally sometimes, not often because I've become resilient to it, but, you know, <laughs> be quite honest and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to take because that's my work. They're my babies, you know, yeah. that yeah. is an art piece. Every piece is an art yeah. piece. Yeah. So that's how I see it. It's hold. It's a a lot different than just a, a a product or a service. You're like you said. It's on show every day, and you've got to go. What do you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I take it on board, and I realize, you know, I've learned so much. I I think that's the main reason why I'm still in business is because I have listened to the clients, and you know, everything they say goes into my brain and out on the page when I'm sketching. Whatever idea it is, whatever color they think they want, or you know, neckline or whatever has all been filtered through and come out in some form if I feel that that's what's, you know, needed out in the marketplace. And that to me is really important. It's not about me designing what I want and what I think they should wear. It's a combination of knowing, you know, what, what they want, but then how I interpret that and give it a, you know, a style or my brand style um, that they aspire to. So, it really is partnership. And you probably have been in a situation, I'm just guessing, that, you know, where someone has said something about um, an item and you've tweaked it, you know? Oh, you, yeah. All yeah, the time. You know, it's like, okay, like you yeah. said, the slit goes down lower and the because people have said, oh, you know, I like that, but it's not going to look, it's too high and it's not, you know, it's not modest enough or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, that's a really good thing in every business mm. going just because you're the founder or the owner, don't um, stop listening to your staff, to people who are coming into your business, because often they will have really good ideas and it might just be a matter of tweaking what you already have to make it the perfect. Yeah. The perfect item or the perfect service or whatever um so i think that is um one of the things that you said and i have to read this because i love this love this um saying if you make a mistake on your own dime there is a very good chance you will never make that mistake again i love that it's yeah. so true and i i think that came about i've i've never worked for anybody else people can't kind of understand that but you know, so that's why so much of what I do, I think, is unique because I started out by myself, you know, with my own money. And 
I really, in retrospect, maybe should have gone and worked for another designer for a couple of years to learn a few things, make those mistakes on their money. Um, but I, I didn't. So I kind of learned the hard way the whole way through, you know, um, and through the 80s, there were all the, you know, tariff situations, wharf strikes, my fabric stuck on wharves, um, couldn't deliver you know, me phoning parliamentarians, getting a direct line back through then saying, hi, I'm Lisa, I'm a young designer from Melbourne, where's my fabric? And I remember Senator John Button um, having to <laughs> deal with me on the phone. I don't know how I got through, but again, that was that oblivion that just led me to, you know, oh, I'm going to do something about this, so who do I call? And, you know, I think, um, so yeah, a lot of my ideas are probably unique, maybe not the best, but they've come about from my own mistakes and and journey and i'm okay with that yeah well that you know what you said it a mistake is just another part of the journey mm. to getting the end the best end result so if you don't make mistakes the way i look at it if you haven't made a lot of mistakes you're probably not doing enough yep. <laughs> our well our word is flurnings learning from failure ah, we we love our flurnings like yep. we we've 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 learned to kind of put a positive spin on it not not beat ourselves up about the mistake mm. or the error it's it's mm. what can we learn from this what's mm. the learning what's the growth opportunity in this for yeah. us yeah yeah exactly Definitely. you know girls we could talk for a long time about uh, what founders do but we're, we're probably getting to that time we've gone way over time which i love because we really could just talk about this I want to just um, ask you guys in one minute to sum up, if you were advising a young person who wants to start a business, what do you think is the most important thing or things they should do to ensure a greater chance of success? I'm going to start with uh, Lisa. Oh, I had a few points here, but a lot of them we've touched upon. So I'll just go quickly with them. Um, you know, getting honest feedback, knowing that your product has a place in the world. Make sure you have enough dollars to get to get you through, to get you started. And kind of know that you will enjoy the ride, the good and the bad, successful and challenging, because that it will be those things and you'll need to be able to roll with it and go with it. And I think, I hope we are preparing our next generations to be able to roll with not only the good but the tough times too, because that's inevitable if you choose to start a business. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Christina? Um, agree with all that Lisa has said. Um, my advice is get a coach, find someone who's tr trodden that path before or someone that you can go to, to, to get advice and be a sounding board. Um, be prepared. It will take longer than you think. It will cost more than you think, way more. It'll be, you know, it'll, you'll be a 10-year overnight success. You know, the, we all say, oh, my goodness, you've been a success so quickly. It's like, no, I'm a 10 or 15-year overnight success. Um, and what was the other thing? The other thing is is more about the the emotional stuff is is be prepared. It's going to test you. It's going to grow you. Be open to the personal growth opportunity because it is going to be emotionally tougher than you've ever thought and stuff will come up that you did not expect and you were not prepared for. Um, so, yeah, just get ready for the roller coaster. Mm -hmm. You know, I would, I, all that is absolutely, I just have one thing I would add to that. And I would say that as a, as a someone who's thinking about starting a business, sometimes there's this perception that, I'm going to leave the corporate life and I'm going to start my own business because I don't want to, I don't want to report to anyone and I want to be the master of my own destiny. Well, reality check is <laughs> that you go into your own business and you do answer to people. You answer to your customers, you answer to your employees. Once you get employees, I mean, you're answering to them because you know, they're, they're going to set the tone. So, you, and you're answering to so many different people. So maybe the, employer employee thing where you answer to employer is gone but you are answering to your clients and a lot of times that can be um frustrating you've got to be able to take a breath and sometimes um you know sort of uh 
look at it for tongue for me sometimes you might have to bite your tongue hey i think we've all had to bite our tongue uh, <laughs> yes uh, yes especially in the early days where you kind of go oh and that's the other thing i would say in the early days when you're pricing yourself you may not you don't have that track record so i'll give you an example um my business was a retained business from, you know, they paid a retainer up front in the middle and at the end. But in the early days, the first three years, when no one knew who I was or anything like that, I couldn't just all of a sudden go, you got to pay me a retainer. So to get the business um, with some of these companies that had clients that were long-term clients and they were dealing with them, I'd say, give me a go. I'll do it on a contingency. You'll see how good we are. And then you'll want to deal with this forever. Basically, you know, I would take that tack. Like, you got nothing to lose. Let me find the person for you. So sometimes you've got to put more time and energy into your process to get the client mm. to be able to prove yourself to warrant retainers. And so I did that the first three years. And then after that, it was all retainer, <laughs> which was good. So um, I hope that people who are listening got a lot of great tips out of this and Lisa we, like I said we could talk to you forever and we really we really enjoyed and I I recommend everybody go to the Armadale shop thank you <laughs> go online for our international listeners go online. online exactly because I personally have several Lisa Barron pieces that I love and I remember buying my first which was literally like 20 years ago and I wow. still have it oh it's relevant today and classy and I love it. And so I recommend everybody going there. But anyway, I want to thank you so much for um, having taken your time to speak with Christina and I. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great show. For more information about Every Step and our guests, head to everysteppodcast.com. To be notified of new podcasts, please subscribe via your favorite listening platform. And of course, follow us on social media and direct message us to share your ideas about guests or topics.